What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Again, that is Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 and 30. I'll give you a second to turn there. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here downtown, Park Church. So whether, again, you're joining us here in person or online, Great to have you. Great to have you be a part of what the Lord wants to do this morning. Um, I, I'm going to begin with a bit of a confession. I'm a little disappointed right now because um, many of you know this is an event space. So there was a wedding here last night. And when the setup team got here, there were some lovely green velvet chairs that we wanted to set up on the stage so the elders and you know others could just like sit on stage and have that like very Baptist presence. We thought that'd be fun. And then like the last second, somebody came and got them. So we have this. So, um, but if you want to see that happen, if you want to make that happen, check cash, whatever, Park Church, just put in the memo blank, like furniture for stage, big chair for Miguel, like whatever. And we'll just, we'll apply it to the correct fund and we'll have fun with it. So um, let's pray. This is a great text to get into. Father, we are grateful for a beautiful fall morning just to come and to worship you. Or there are probably many here who are maybe not here to worship, but they're here to explore. They're here to take a next step. They're here to at least listen and learn something. And I pray that as you meet us here in your word, that what we're learning is not just or not even primarily an academic thing, but it's something that is experiential, something that's life-giving to us, um, that it's transformative and renewing to us. 
um, spirit. These are not just words on a page, but they're words that you take with your active presence and your active power. And you apply them, you teach us, you counsel us, uh, you exhort us and stir us on to do with these words, to believe with these words what would be honoring to the Father. So help us as we learn, help us as we grow, help us as we repent this morning. Be present in all of that. May you receive the glory for Christ's sake. Amen. If Jesus were to walk into Denver this afternoon, and we did this on our prayer walk yesterday, and I know that Jesus is, in a sense, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But I mean, in the sense that he walked into these ancient towns on foot, if he were to walk into Denver this afternoon and spend the next week here walking around, driving around, participating in, learning from culture, I wonder in just a few sentences after just a week's time what Jesus would say about Denver. I wonder what he would commend. Like, that's good. Cultivate that. Plant there. Grow there. That kind of stuff looks like my kingdom, looks like seeds of my love, my grace, my justice. And at the same time, I wonder what kinds of things he would condemn. I wonder if he were to walk into and then leave Denver in the spirit of Matthew 11, what might Jesus say about Denver? Woe to you, Denver for what? And these aren't meant to be just rhetorical questions. They're not certainly meant to be esoteric, like, ooh, wow, that was impressive. Like, what, no answers to that. I think there are answers to those questions. The kinds of things Jesus would see, the kinds of things Jesus would say, well done, the kinds of things Jesus would point to honestly and say, that is systemically broken. And in fact, it's systemically broken in a way that it's so ingrained, so woven into the fabric of Denver culture, you don't even notice it anymore. It's like the fish asking what water is. It's just the environment that we swim in, and we've embraced it, we've accepted it, maybe even as part of our Christian worldview, and we don't often step back and say, let's examine what are our underlying beliefs? What are the cultural narratives that everyone's living by? And they're just accepting certain storylines about this is what constitutes the good life. If you have this, if you do this, if you say this, if you're around these kinds of people having these kinds of experiences, this is what it's all about. And I wonder what Jesus would have to say about that. Because the setting here of what Ben just read, so going back to what Miguel preached on last week, just a real quick bit of context. Jesus has just rebuked his generation and he's compared them to like spoiled, petulant children and says, there's nothing that's going to please you. Like I send this, this kind of uh, ascetic, this prophetic voice, this, this crazy man and John the Baptist who's just wild with this simple message of repent for the, the Lamb of God is coming. Like turn around. And he's like, y'all wrote him off as a madman. And then comes the Son of Man, the Messiah, and he's eating and drinking. He's doing the opposite of what John the Baptist did. And you're like, nah, we don't, want a, we don't want a Messiah who befriends pathetic losers. And now, beginning in verse 20, Jesus actually amps up that rebuke another notch. 
So he's already rebuked them. He said, you're, you're like children that can't be pleased. Whatever toys you're given, you just break them and sit back with this critical, judgmental, we're better than all of this attitude. Now, verse 20, he says, uh, Matthew writes, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. I want to pause right there and say, who is Jesus talking to? So he says, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Okay? Now, I don't have a map for you, but if you just picture that ancient land of Israel and you picture that northern region far north from Jerusalem, there's this Sea of Galilee, and on the north shore of that Sea of Galilee was this little fishing village called Capernaum. And actually, this is where Jesus grew up. After he grew up in Nazareth, his childhood was in Nazareth, but as soon as he kind of hits adulthood, he's living in Capernaum. He's ministering from Capernaum, this little fishing village, then over here, two miles away, is another fishing village just kind of coming around the arc of the Sea of Galilee. Here's, here's Bethsaida. And then going the other way a few miles is another fishing village. And uh, sorry, I got those out of order. Chorazin. But then Bethsaida was actually the hometown of Peter, Philip, and Andrew, some of the fishermen who became his disciples. Okay? So my point is, these three villages, this little region, was ground zero for Jesus' public ministry, okay? When you back up a couple chapters in Matthew and you see that he's preaching and teaching in the synagogues and he's healing and opening the eyes of the blind and opening the ears of the deaf and making the lame walk and even raising the dead, it's all happening here so far, okay? And this is fascinating to me that, that when God decides to come in the flesh, where he embodies himself is not Jerusalem, it's not Rome, it's not Antioch, it's not Alexandria, it's not Constantinople, it's not Carthage. It's these podunk fishing villages, these little out-of-the-way villages that, that nobody except the Galileans themselves even cared about. So I want you to imagine the privilege that these people had, like generation after generation after generation just catching fish, paying their taxes, living and dying. Like good, decent, hardworking lives. But Jesus, the Son of God, steps into that culture. Incredible privilege. And this privilege, in fact, is the basis of Jesus' rebuke. Because here to paraphrase what he says, he says, you all despise Tyre and Sidon, these Roman coastal cities. And you remember how many times in the Old Testament era, the various prophets sent by God are decrying the wickedness, the rampant immorality and the idolatry of places like Tyre and Sidon. And they oppressed the people of God in the Old Testament. They ruled over the people of God in the Old Testament. And so God condemned them. And Sodom, I mean, I don't have to say much about Sodom. It's, it has the reputation as the worst city ever. But Jesus turns the... It's like the flip phone on your, your, uh, your camera phone. He flips it around. He's like, now they see themselves. And he's like, but what about you? What about you and the privilege that you have had that none of these ancient cities had? And his point is not Tyre and Sidon were good places. Sodom was okay. His point was they were terrible. They were doing evil things. But what about you? And when it comes down to what really matters, 
It doesn't matter that you're a fishing village and you're pretty decent people. You've seen the miracles firsthand and done nothing with them. And so there are two important words here. The first is the word denounce. As Jesus begins to denounce these cities, it means to rebuke or to reprimand or even to shame. Which, I mean, that, uh, you're like, what? Because we get a few verses later and we're like, Jesus, gentle and lowly. You know? And we have this very paradoxical thing going on all throughout Jesus' life and ministry where some of us gravitate toward the, ooh, yeah, gentle and lowly, 100% of the time, gentle and lowly. And he's over here like, shame on you. Think about what you have seen, and you're doing nothing with it. And there's a stern rebuke. So the word woe, then, is this ancient, it's like an interjection of horror and dismay, and you could say lamentation. And I want to kind of liken this going back to the familiar story of Jonah the prophet that most of you know, like the prophet that was sent to Nineveh, but he's like, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell them that God's going to destroy them. I'm going to go the opposite way. And so he goes the opposite way and gets thrown overboard and eaten by a whale or a big fish or whatever. And the whale swims wherever he does and kicks him back out. After three days, he goes to Nineveh. But what's interesting there is all God said to Jonah was, go to Nineveh and cry out against it. Like, whoa, Nineveh. And then it says, like, when Jonah finally obeys, he goes to Nineveh. And, and what does he say? Do you know his message? He's not like repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or God has a good plan for your life. You should just get on board. No, he goes and he's like, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Bye. Okay, I, I did what God wanted me to do. There, I checked the prophetic box, right? And he just keeps getting up in 40 days, now 39 days. And what's interesting about that is Jonah intuitively knew the heart of God, that even if I just go with like a woe or a condemnation or a rebuke, the very fact that God isn't just destroying Nineveh means that when he cries out against it, it says, here's what's coming, is that he's actually giving them, a, in, the, in the sternest way, he's giving them an opportunity again to repent and to turn around. And so what I want us to hear here in this very stern language of Jesus is not an angry or judgmental, let alone a hateful, like, whoa, but it's a warning that goes like this. Jesus is saying, when you see my person and work, the only reasonable response is to change your life. Okay? That's my one big idea for this morning is that repentance is the defining mark of what it means to follow Jesus. Because we're either perfect, which we're not, or we are living a life of repentance, which I'll, I'll dig into in just a moment, what that means. But then, so what we see Jesus doing is he's trying to, in the strongest language, he's trying to shake these towns out of their apathy and say, turn now. But then we look at the rest of this text and we say, okay, so turn what to what, Jesus? And here's how I think the rest of this text lines up, is I think Jesus is going to, he's showing us two different paths, Okay. So he begins with like kind of like two different heart postures toward him or just in general. Two different heart postures, two different underlying narratives. Then he's showing us two different ways to respond to him. And then he's showing us two different destinations. And I think it actually makes sense if I address those in reverse order. So let's start with the ending. So you know where we're going. He says there are two different des destinations. That's point one, okay? And I would argue here that, and, and most of you would agree with me, Jesus was 
He was obviously more than a person. He was God. He was the son of God. But he was the most loving, most gracious, most sacrificial, that gentle and lowly Jesus. He was the most of all those things of any person who has ever walked this earth. So it's important when we hear him say unequivocally, everyone's life journey does not end up in the same destination. So Jesus says, okay, now, Jesus is not a universalist. He's not saying somehow, some way, I know you all believe different things. You believe different things about me. You believe in different gods or idols or possessions or money or you, you have all these different things that, that undergird your faith. But it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because I'm so gracious, you're all going to wind up in the same big pond. He doesn't say that. And I think it's actually because of his love for humanity, you see it right here in the text, he says the opposite. He says one path leads to judgment and the other path leads to rest. In verses 22 and 24, he clearly says there is a day of judgment coming. And he uses a word here that means a day of perfect justice when the God who sees and knows everything, just spreads out all the evidence, examines every tidbit of evidence, and makes a verdict about your life and my life that is perfectly honest and perfectly just and perfectly righteous. And he clearly says here, instead of being exalted to heaven, he says, some will be brought down to Hades. Now, Hades is, this is a transliteration of a Greek word, Hades, that for the Greeks meant the place of the dead. So in some contexts, it's like, you know, my grandfather died and we buried him in the grave. We buried him in the Hades. It could mean that. In other contexts, it means something a little different. So we got to look at the context and say, what did Jesus mean? Does he just mean that some are going to live on and some are going to die? Or does he mean that some are going into a grave or a tomb and some are still walking around the earth? And, and you see here, no, the contrast is not between walking around versus the grave. The contrast in Jesus' own terms is between heaven and Hades, or what we would say in modern terms, heaven and hell. Okay, And what Jesus is saying here, this is very important, just at a high level, Jesus is saying there's a path that leads to judgment and separation from God. There is another separate path that leads to rest and life in the presence of God forever. Okay, That's what Jesus is saying. But notice in verses 28 and 29, he explicitly invites anyone and everyone, join me, not on the path to destruction. That's not what I want for your life or your future. I'm inviting you, anyone, come and join me on this path to rest. Now, next week, we're going to zoom in on just, just verses 28 through 30. It's often called the great invitation. This is a text that if you're a follower of Jesus, your heart should just ooze this kind of heartbeat of come anyone and everyone who is beat down and broken and exhausted from the trials and the culture and all just the mess of life, your own personal failure, things that have been done to you, things that you've done to other people that you can never go back and quite make right. He's like, all of you just come find rest in me. We're going to dig into that. Okay. Invite all your friends. Invite everyone who you're like, man, you're exhausted, you're tired, you're worn out, you're cynical about God, 
because this invitation is for them, okay? We're gonna go into that. This morning, I'm, I'm looking at a bigger context of where you see the contrast, two different destinations, okay? I wanna pause right here and say, I think it's fair to say everyone around us wants rest. Nobody wants judgment. Nobody wants punishment. I want to start with the assumption as, you, as you're in here just interacting with one another or let alone when you walk back out of here and you're interacting with our city and you're loving our city well, just understand everybody, it's a universal human longing. People want rest, restoration, satisfaction. We could use all these different words. Now, a lot of people don't think they'll find rest in God or in Jesus but that doesn't stop them from looking somewhere, trying somewhere, experimenting with what? One relationship after another after another. Is this the person that's going to do this for me where I feel this acceptance, this affirmation? Just like they, they just make relationship easy. Or they run to food and drink. They run to pleasure. They run to the mountains. I mean, out here... You know the kinds of things that Denver's doing to, to run and strive for, as ironic as that is. They're striving for rest. It could be turning to an illicit drug and just saying, I, like, I can't find rest for my mind, for my body, for, for what's been done to me, for how I've been looked at by my own father and mother and these people in my life. And but can we start with the standpoint of instead of being just instantly hypercritical of like, other people. Understand, they're just like me. They want rest. They're going about it the wrong way. Many of the unhealthy things that they're doing and believing and thinking and saying are actually rooted, though, in the desire for rest. Okay, let's play off that next week. Let's learn how to leverage that into the most natural opportunities for presenting the good news of Jesus to them. By the way, I want to say, if you're hearing me right now and you would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus, at least not yet, I'm exploring, or I'm, I'm against it, I just want you to hear me saying, your longing for, your pursuit of rest is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not something Jesus is, bam, coming down hard on. Your innate desire for and pursuit of rest is good. Jesus just loves you so deeply, he's like, then stop walking that path that will never get you there. Turn around and start walking this path where that's only where it leads, okay? So two destinations. Now, this next point is so important because what makes a difference of like, am I on this path or am I on this path? And how could you know before you get to the end of your life? Well, because Jesus himself is gonna say, there's two different ways to respond to me that set you on one of these two paths. So notice this, when Jesus denounces these fishing villages, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, what is the heart of his concern? Is he like, you guys just aren't moral enough. I mean, look at how you're living. Is he criticizing like immorality or adultery? Like you're cheating on your spouses. You're not taking care of your kids. You're not moral enough. You're not ethical enough. You're not going to synagogue enough. None of that. The heart of Jesus' concern is simply how they responded to him, or I should say how they didn't respond to him. Again, verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. See those next five words with me, because they did not repent. Okay, repent, such an important concept for here. If I'm saying the one big idea is that repentance is the mark 
of all those who are really after Jesus, then it's important we understand what repentance is. Uses a big Greek word here. I want you to know it. You don't have to memorize it, but it's metanaeo. Meta is like after something, or it can even be an improvement or an adjustment of something. But naeo is your way of thinking. It's related to your mind. It's related to your perceptions. It's the way you understand things. So the word repentance in the Greek language literally is change the way you're thinking about everything. Okay? So what Jesus is saying here is you need new mental maps. The world, Denver, your culture has handed you a set of mental maps. Here's how you get around in our culture. Here's the progressive way of doing things in our culture. And Jesus is saying, I'm not saying everything about that is wrong. I'm saying that is the path to judgment. You need a new set of mental maps. You need to change your perceptions, change your way of thinking. And what Jesus is saying to these specific fishing villages is, you saw my mighty works firsthand. And you didn't change your thinking It's an incredible indictment when you consider what came come right before this, okay? Taking you back to Miguel's sermon last week, the, which was the text right before this. Do you remember this? Jesus is doing all these miracles. John the Baptist, his forerunner, the prophet who said he's coming, the Messiah is coming, is imprisoned. He's locked up by Herod. And John is sending his disciples from prison to Jesus, and he's saying, are, are you the one that I'm waiting for? Or did I, did I miss something? Because... Yo, I'm in prison. That's not what I expected. If you're the son of God and you're the lamb of God. Like things are not going well. They're going worse. So, you know, he mentioned the difference between doubt and unbelief. John doubts. He's like, what, what's up, Jesus? Are you the one? Are you the Messiah or not? And you remember Jesus' answer? And you can look back at verse 4 if you want to. This is Jesus' answer. How, do you, how would you know, John? He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Here's my answer, John. Look at the mighty deeds. You know, all the mighty deeds that the fishing villages are ignoring and refusing to change. He's like, that's all I'm going to tell you. That's all I'm going to show you. And I think if we understand scripture correctly, John's like, that's right. Because these mighty deeds fulfill what the Old Testament said the Messiah would come and do. These, these mighty deeds demonstrate that you have the divine power inherent to who you are. You're doing things that no one can do unless they're God, I believe. You are the Savior King. So get this. The fishing villages are seeing the exact same miracles that Jesus told John. How would you know if I'm the Messiah or not? And they're like, eh, we're good. We're good. Nothing. Just unmoved. They're not sending their brains out. Just, I'm good. And I want you to make no mistake, Jesus is saying that then there's only two ways to respond to me. There's only two ways to respond to Jesus. It's either repentant faith or it's unrepentant unbelief. Those are the only two ways. There's no third way. And some of you here this morning may even say, well, well, that's not fair because I'm interested in Jesus. Like, I'm intrigued by some of the things that he did. Or I think he's a great teacher. I think he's a great moral exemplar of, like, how to love your neighbor, or how to, you know, sacrifice for someone who's different than you. 
But uh, am I supposed to change my, you're telling me I'm supposed to change my thinking, reorient my mental maps and completely change that and orient this around this person? I'm not doing that. And Jesus would call that a lack of repentance. Because again, the word repentance just means I've changed my mind. I have allowed you to reorder my thinking, my perceptions, my understanding, and therefore I'm walking a different direction because my mind has changed. Okay? So question for you. Right now in this moment, which of those two paths would you say that you're on? Okay? I'm not asking what you did in the past. Well, I've done this and this and this, maybe really bad stuff, maybe really good stuff. I'm not asking about that. I'm not asking if you were raised in a Christian home. I'm not asking how often you attend church. I'm not asking if you've ever prayed the sinner's prayer. I'm simply asking which of these two paths are you on? And is your life characterized by unrepentance, by not continuously changing your thinking and changing your footsteps in response to Jesus? Or would you say, yeah, like I'm still sinning. I still struggle with things. I still have doubts, weaknesses, fears, all of that. But I can honestly say that I'm continuously allowing God to change my thinking so that it conforms more and more to Jesus. And I want to close here with this third point. And what we're doing here with this third point is something that Jesus does in the text, which is pretty subtle. I call it, in counseling, I call it popping the hood. Okay, so what we're doing is like, so far, that repentance or unrepentance is like a dashboard warning light on your car. You see that light come on? Anybody ever do this? Like that light comes on and you're like, oh, I hate that light. So you get a piece of duct tape out, rip it off. Stick it right there. You're like, I'm good. Don't see it. Or you even, some of you are a little more ambitious, like you unscrew the little bulb that's causing that to light up. Or I've got this going on in my Jeep right now where there's like this, when I hit bumps, there's a, a loud kind of like thunking, which I think is one, at least one of the struts going bad or it is bad. And it's like, I'm just going to slap noise-canceling headphones on every time I drive, and it's, it's good, Okay. So what, what popping the hood is, is like, okay, if the dashboard warning light's on, that is an indicator of an underlying root problem. And what Jesus so often, he, he does not like superficial, like, oh, just do this instead of this. There, good. He doesn't like superficial solutions because they're not solutions. He wants heart-level solutions, okay? So this is, this is the third point. Jesus is going to go under the surface. He's going to pop the hood and say, where are these, where's the belief and unbelief coming from? It's coming from ultimately two entirely different heart postures, okay? So let's explore that for a few minutes. When, when Jesus first spoke these words of woe, how do you think the fishing villages responded? He's like, shame on you reprimand. You're worse than the worst of the worst from the Old Testament that you hate. I'll paraphrase their response because I don't think they were just surprised and offended. I think they responded something like this. Rabbi, you're out of your mind. You think it's going to be better for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for us. Okay, hold on. First of all, we are the covenant people of God. Maybe you missed that, Jesus. They're Gentiles. We're Jews. We're good. We worship at the synagogue. We're essentially moral people. This is a fishing village. So many generations of my family have been incredibly decent and hardworking people. How dare you? How dare you 
think that we're somehow worse off than our long-running, long-standing enemies. How dare you? We're right. They're wrong. You're wrong. Now, why do I say that that was their response? I'm reading between the lines, but, but look, at, look at verse 25 that begins, at that time Jesus declared, and then it records the words of an actual prayer that Jesus now is going to pray to the Father. So when I'm reading Scripture, I'm like, okay, at that time. So these two things happened at the same time, right? We see it right there in the text. So something about their heart response prompted Jesus to pray what he's now going to pray, which is this, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So the first heart posture is a bent toward what I'll call proud, presumptuous, perverse normality. And these are the cities that Jesus rebuked. They're like, look at us. We're smart. We go to synagogue. We understand the Torah. We're on the right path. We're moral. We're decent. We're good. And by the way, in some sense, they were right. If you wanted to look at their ethics, their ethics were better than these other towns. They, they were. Okay? They may have even been more sincere. They certainly knew more. So in all that sense, they were right. But they were completely wrong because, friends, grace runs from this kind of religious arrogance. It's what Stanley Hauervoss described as perverse normality. That's where I get that term from, the theologian Stanley Hauervoss. He's saying they saw the glory and power of God in the face of Jesus, in the works of Jesus, and they just went back to life as normal. Fishing and cutting and cleaning fish. No change. Do you hear the, what I mean, perverse normality? It's like something's here that should have reordered, restructured everything about what you thought God was up to and how a person comes into the kingdom and all of that. And you looked at Jesus, you listened to Jesus, and you're like, well, he ain't the one. Let's go look for somebody else. And friends, today, how much of culture isn't as bad as it could be, but it just isn't repentant? You look all around us. I think this is a cautionary tale for the people of God today. It's certainly a canary in the coal mine for Denver culture, where most people I interact with as neighbors, they're intelligent, decent, normal people. Most of them are not just out there just crazy sinning. Good people, smart people. We have a very highly educated workforce here in the city, if you don't know. But there's this presumption underlying this narrative in so many hearts that just says, I don't need to confront my cultural narratives. I don't need to confront the storyline that my life is running on. I'm not that bad. That's great that you have the mission for people that are that bad. I'm saying what other people think but I don't need that. I don't need church. And Jesus comes right out and says in this prayer, he's like, Father, they don't get it. They don't get that salvation doesn't come to people like them. Revelation doesn't come to people like them. Rest doesn't come to people like them. Jesus' prayer, you need to hear it as a cry of lament. He is grieving. His heart is broken for these people. Our hearts should be broken 
for these kinds of people. But he's saying there's another storyline. You don't have to be proud. You don't have to be presumptuous. You don't have to live by this perverse normality. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call this other heart posture toward God drained, discouraged, but dependent. Jesus is looking around. He's like, I, I see it everywhere. People are exhausted. They are weighed down by the burdens of life. They're beat down and they are beat up. And he sees people who are absolutely helpless and he calls them little children in verse 25, which is literally the word infants, okay? I want you to just picture an infant for a moment. We have a couple in here. Congratulations to our new parents. Um, our new parents understand that little tiny thing that you love with all your heart is utterly dependent on you, okay? Other, uh, other mammals are born and they quickly learn, like, I've got to do some stuff for myself to survive. Humans are not like that, incredibly. They're just, they're just there, completely reliant on an outside caring personality to keep them alive, not just to take care of them. And Jesus is looking out there and is like, you know, spiritually, there, there's some people like this. They're beat down, they're beat up, they're weighed down, they're pressed down, they're exhausted, but they understand no good thing comes from me that gets the grace. I just need a work of God in my life. That's it. That's, that's what I know. And this is who gets the grace in Jesus' upside-down kingdom. It's not the one who's like, I, man, I, I am seminary educated. I always go to synagogue. I'm a good person. I can tell you my pedigree of my family. Jesus is like, I, I don't care. That's all about you. You want to hear something that's all about me and the grace of the Father for broken children who are on the run from him? It's someone who just stops and says, I am weary. I am weak. I am not that smart. I am helpless. And again, my question is, this morning, where do you locate yourself? And isn't it interesting? Isn't it ironic? Where, which side of those two things do we all gravitate toward? It's like, I am intelligent, moral, decent, good, hardworking, or, yep, I am, I am fundamentally broken at my core. I am weak, I am dependent, I am helpless. We're all like, bro, I'm over, I am over here. I'm good, I'm good. And some of you in your goodness are like, and, and I know I need Jesus. But Jesus is inviting us to live over here, not boast. And by the way, I know many of you, you're intelligent, you are moral. So it's not, it's not a literal thing, but it's, it's a, again, it's a posture of heart. It's not that you didn't get a good education. It's that you're not boasting in your education. It's not that you're not a moral, decent person most of the time. It's that you're not boasting in that. It's not your ground for boasting. So I wonder how we, and I'm talking to like us church people, how are we missing the active grace of God, the work of God, the transforming, renewing work of the Spirit in our lives, not because of some big blatant sin pattern, but because of perverse normality. We can read our Bibles and be like, I, I didn't get anything today. Did you get anything today? No, I'm, I'm dry. And I'm not making fun of that. Like, there are days and weeks where I feel that too. Like, I've read all this. I was looking for something new, something different, like some just... Ugh, like stab me in the heart and bring me alive and it feels electric and my hair stands up and most days are not like that. 
But I don't think most of us in here are in danger of just like being as bad as we could be. I think what we're in danger of is being so good and so smart about how we're good that we're not actively turning, actively changing our minds, actively inviting Jesus to remap What's this thing going on here that tells me a story that's on repeat over and over again? I'm gonna read this quote in closing here. So I love this. This whole text has been a contrast, two paths, two kinds of people, two heart responses, two destinations. Douglas Sean O'Donnell writes, it is the contrast in the gospels between the entire religious aristocracy and the 12 ordinary men between the the scripturally savvy scribes and the seemingly gullible fishermen. It's the difference between the Pharisee who lifts his eyes to heaven, oh Lord, I'm glad I'm not like them, and the tax collector who pounds his chest, oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the difference between Caiaphas who points at our Lord and demands, in effect, are you the Son of God? And the Roman centurion, who points to Christ crucified and says, truly, this was the Son of God. It's the difference between the rich young ruler who walked away distraught with his camel-sized pockets still heavy with gold and little Zacchaeus, who climbed up a big sycamore tree and after he came down, opened his heart to the poor. It's the difference between the proud in heart and the poor in spirit. It's the difference between the conceited self-reliance and meek dependence upon God through Christ. And I just say, Lord Jesus, give us the grace to walk this second path. You're familiar with the gospels, many of you. You know all those contrasts. But isn't it fascinating how as good moral park church people we are more like Caiaphas and the Pharisee in that group than we care to acknowledge until hopefully this morning when you're like, dang, he's right. I mean, Jesus is right. And if repentance is the defining mark of those who follow you, Jesus, then help us to live lives characterized by ongoing change. It's okay. It's the life Jesus called you to. Trust him and let him change you. Trust him and let him change you. Trust him and let him change you. And those are the two steps of the entire Christian life. Let's help each other live that kind of humble, repentant life. Let's pray. And Father, this morning, Lord, as you make an appeal in your word to good moral people, I pray that you would, by your spirit, be making the same appeal to us. Lord, let us not be satisfied with our ethics, with our morality, with our intelligence, with our education. Because Jesus sat there and said, Father, thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've given them away for free to helpless babies. And Lord, as as counterintuitive as it is, as much as some of our hearts and minds right now are just kicking and screaming, 
Would you make us more like helpless, dependent babies? It's why very few rich enter the kingdom because they've got the money to rely on. It's why very few intellectuals enter the kingdom because they think they're so smart. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. It's the weak, it's the broken, it's the hurting, it's the foolish. It's the person who says, I know I have nothing to stand on, who is jumping at this invitation of Jesus to just turn away from the judgment and come find rest. Lord, maybe you're, you're saying something to us also about the kind of people that we should open our eyes to who are all over our city that already know that they're foolish, already know they've made mistakes, already know they're broken. They just don't know yet that they can come and find rest in you. And Jesus, if there's someone here this morning who's a, who is on that path of judgment, may today be a turning point in their life where they open their heart to the saving work, the compassion, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of Jesus and receive even right now in this moment, the kind of rest that you offer. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.